For what you are about to receive, may the Lord make you truly thankful. And welcome to another episode of Out Damn Podcast. This is Jamal, and joining me all, as always are Bobby, hey. Austin, Hello. and Sarah. Hey. And like last week, we're just going to get right into it. So Bobby, whenever you're ready. All right, so uh, this article recently popped up on, uh, actually it's a couple weeks now, um, September 30th, by a writer named Sean Douglas. And I, he makes an interesting point about how all of the voices in theater are incredibly liberal, and that we really need to have kind of a wider, a broader range of voices, and also to be more ideologically challenged. What's interesting is it's not just a discussion of that. He also winds up dragging a lot of shows through the mud for reasons I can't quite ascertain. He, it's a little convoluted is the problem for me, I guess. Um, what did you guys think about starting? Um, I, I think I disagree with some of his examples. His examples include, uh, there's a uh, recent musical, Dogfight, and he kind of drags that for, uh, he thinks it's like a forced romance, and he thinks it's teaching kind of the wrong values, because it's about the guy, for lack of better words, the guy's kind of an asshole, and he ends up getting the girl anyway, and uh, that kind of offended him for that play. And what I find interesting about that is he's talking about how we need to be challenged but he's complaining about how he was challenged and he saw something he did not agree with. Yeah. <laughs> and that's fascinating because he's kind of Contradicting himself, his, yes. yeah, in a way. Yeah. I almost said disproving his own point, but that's not what he's doing here. Uh, I mean, and then uh, continuing... Uh, he has the audacity to drag what is my favorite play next fall. Well, one of my, and then one of mine later. Uh, but next fall... He claims that it is about the central conflict between gay Christian Luke struggling in a relationship with atheist Adam. He he hates this because he thinks that all he thinks that the playwright is saying that all Christians think are anti-gay. I think it's really weird because you have Adam, who is a gay Christian, yes. as one of the title characters as or, you know, uh, Luke, Luke rather yeah. Luke, who is the the opposite lead in the show, opposite Adam. And, like, Luke's perspective on Christianity being a gay man is very different than his parents, who are, like, sticking to their Bibles conservative. So you get very different viewpoints from, like, every character in the show. And I'm just interested in, like, how he thinks this is, like, it isn't challenging? Because I think it is. Uh, what I... I feel like overall, this is the feeling I get. I feel like he... He's kind of crying about how he needs to be challenged, but when he is challenged, he's upset by it. So you can't really be upset because you're getting the thing that you want. I mean, yes. Uh, I think my biggest problem is uh, directly involves the third play that he mentions, which is a play that I like a lot. And uh, uh, What's the title of that one? Was it the uh, uh, Tom Stoppard play? Yeah, it's The Real Thing by Tom Stoppard. He does say the play is wonderful in most regards, but he says it takes a very lenient approach to mar- uh, marital. marital infidelity. And... It doesn't take a lenient approach because the characters that commit infidelity in that play, um, things don't work out for them. So it's not like the characters cheat on their significant others and then everything works out and life is great and everyone should cheat on everyone. I think it humanizes the people that do it and it never says, well, it never argues that that is the right thing to do, but it's Tom Stoppard expressing his opinion at the time this play was written, which is the 80s, I believe. 
And it's got a lot of personal things with him and his own situations that are playing into the script itself. And he's not necessarily defending the actions. He's just humanizing the character that does this. Well, and that's the thing, too, is that this, this, that is something that challenges, you know what I mean? Like, yes. I, that, that play challenged me, I can honestly say. Uh, because I'm someone that is very against infidelity in any form, like dating, married, whatever. Um, but... That, and the fact that I, you know what I mean? The fact that Tom Stopper could make me see through the point of view of someone that did this mm-hmm. and not agree with them but sympathize with them, that's challenging. You know what I mean? And he doesn't like that that challenged him. So I, I think my problem here is that, like, for a very long time in the world of theater, we had views that were all the same because there was only one type of person writing plays. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, that's, that was white men. You didn't really get the voices of, like, people of color or women or non-straight playwrights who... I mean, we had some non-straight playwrights, but and their works are recognized, but it's generally like Tennessee Williams, and not, the context matter isn't generally about being something other than straight. And you had yeah. these voices for a very long time that were about this specific, that were like the same and very conservative. And I'm not really sure I want to go back into a world of theater where we're less accepting. I agree. Because that's what it seems like it's arguing. Everything yes. is too liberal and forward-thinking. We need some of the good old days. I don't need any more of that in my life. Well, I don't think it's quite, you know, I long for the good old days of, you know... Smallpox. And Tom and Jane and misogyny. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I think he, makes a va- he does make a valid point about the lack of conservative voices in theater. But it's I don't think it's I don't think it's in quite that way. I think he's decrying the fact that they don't exist. However, he's also decrying the fact that he is being challenged in general. And they're not even my conservative voices, which I find interesting. Well, as a conservative, there's kind of a reason why conservative plays don't exist. <laughs> yes. Because it doesn't make sense for them to exist. Because in general, it's like, well, okay, no, let me explain myself. Let me explain myself. The whole thing with being liberal is you want change. And plays are a way of making that happen. What am I saying that's no, bothering you? What, okay. Okay. Because, like, a lot of the changes happen because plays are reaching out in political facets. Whereas in the beginning it was more of a religious thing and it was a conservative thing and it was with the church and they started using it to get change. And so that's just kind of what it's become. It doesn't entirely make sense if you don't want change to make a play because then it just becomes static and nothing is going to happen and there will not be change. I would say most plays are liberal, if not almost all, unless we go back to the church. Here's an example. I'm not sure... uh... Kind of thinking back to my hometown situation. I mean, I'm, I'm hometown, small town, East Texas, stuff like that. Not very small, small city. The conservative population there isn't interested in theater. They're interested in the big football and all, and you know, all that good stuff. Right. And I mean, can we call it good? Really? Stuff. I'm a man that can enjoy football, but at the same time. Not when it's taking away funding and stuff like that from art programs, and that's okay. The only people really arguing and lobbying for art program funding and things like that are the uh, liberal-minded people in Longview, which isn't very many by any name drop or whatever, which isn't very many people by any means, but that's how it is. And I think, I mean, there aren't a lot of plays about conservative topics because there aren't a lot of conservative playwrights. And that, I mean, that's... You don't, you don't really get into this business being a conservative. I, I can't name too many people who are here. I mean, again, sorry, Sarah, but I cannot name too many conservatives that are here and like, I want change about this thing. I mean, yeah. But the thing is, you say you're conservative, but you're conservative financially. Fiscally. Yeah, well, yeah. and you're not conservative socially. It's still socially. technically conservative. 
Right. Okay, but, but okay, but most most of these plays aren't written about like money, liberal. <laughs> Unless liberal, we're talking about you know like Enron. Yes, but most of these plays aren't written about liberal like liberal fiscal, liberal, liberal fiscal responsibility. Right, liberal that, fiscal right. responsibility. <laughs> but they're written about social issues, but so I don't really get your. There point are for. conservative shows that exist, like yes. Dulcidius. That's a conservative show. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually like. Dulcetius, oh, Dulcetius, Insidious, whatever. Insidious, <laughs> <laughs> whatever. Um, I just, I, I, yeah, I just, you don't, you don't really, I don't feel like you really get into this business being a social conservative. Like, what, what is there here for you to do unless you're doing all the plays of like the ancient church? Then okay, you, you have your way. Jesus Christ, superstar. And I mean, I feel again. like theater is something for the. Anybody who feels repressed, they can do theater, and like, like there's really no need for like the people who are in charge of everything right now, which is mainly conservative white males, to be doing theater because they if control you, everything. If you want to preserve the status quo, what are you? What story are you telling? Yeah, about how great this is for you. Okay, great. I imagine it's just kind of infinite revivals of Hello Dolly. <laughs> that's that's the image I have of like white male stodgy theater. Here, here, here's another point. Uh, I think it's the last point I'm going to make on this topic so we can actually talk about other stuff. A situation that comes to my mind is um, my high school theater. Anytime that we ever tried to do something that was not run-of-the-mill um, shit, Into the Woods, um, something that isn't that controversial, although Into the Woods is a darker, very dull, whatever. Something mass appeal, um, something safe. Yes, yes. Anytime something other... I mean, even... Uh, I think one semester we like tried to do Sweeney Todd, and that was shut down because that was too controversial. And you have and you have plays that I feel like are they say things, but they are plays that we know like that every that is more that are more universal. Perfect example being To Kill a Mockingbird. Yes, that that you can have and go out with families to see. But I'm sure if some of us have learned, there are still subject matters in this play that should be pretty easy to swallow. Absolutely, make them get up and leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because even like in To Kill a Mockingbird, with it being simple, it's still doing this thing where it's holding a mirror up and asking, "Are you being complacent in this thing?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes some people uncomfortable. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we did it right, and a white family left when a racial expletive was used, mm-hmm. but the white family are the ones that got offended by it. That's and, intriguing, and it's kind of it's kind of and the complaint of the box office and stuff like that. It's kind of confusing to me. Like I can't really grasp wrap my mind around it, but. There's actually, there's been a lot of shows recently in Texas, specifically done in high schools, that have been, like, shut down. There was a show called Cat Calls that was a feminist show that uh, people got up and left and complained about because the people who complained said it was offensive to men. Um, Legally Blonde was canceled out of high school because it was too racy. Legally Blonde is too racy. Macbeth was canceled because of witchcraft. (laughs) The Crucible was canceled because fake witchcraft. Hang on, hang on. Almost Maine was canceled because two ma- two male characters told each other they loved each other. Yep. No physical contact. Yep. They're across the stage, specifically in the stage directions. But this high school production was shut down because two men told them told the other they loved each other. Oh, um, and then there were none was canceled once because the original title was Ten Little Indians, and that was offensive, even though it was no longer called Ten Little Indians. Ah, yes. There's an even more offensive original title, but let's not get into that. Ten little... Ten <laughs> yeah. little N-words, ten little N-words, yeah. Yeah. God. But it was canceled just because of, oh, this used to be this? Yes, because it used to be that. That's intriguing. That yeah. is intriguing. <laughs> Another... Uh, jumping back slightly, what I find interesting about people 
being surprised and offended by Mockingbird is that this is material that's been, you know, part of kind of the American uh, kind of cultural background for over 50 years. Yeah. yeah. How are you not aware that this is in this show? Mm-hmm. Especially like growing up like where... Like, yeah, in the South. Where we, where, like in yes, the deep ab- South. Absolutely. Not absolutely. just in the South, in the deep South. Like, you can't not know this play. This mm-hmm. it, Even if it's play this book. Yeah. You can't not know what To Kill a Mockingbird And even about. if you haven't read the book, you've seen the movie. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Precisely. <sighs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on from this, another uh, equally hot-button issue right now. Uh, there's a great article on HowlRound.com, which I had never heard of, entitled Dear My Fellow White Chicago or Anywhere Theater People. That uh, I This article has a lot of interesting stuff, some of which I am absolutely about, some of which I'm a little confused by. True. But uh, I, I agree I feel with like most this of is these gonna... points, but there's a specific one that I do not agree with at all. All right. Uh, yeah, let's jump into this. Jamal, what do you think about this? I really enjoy this article because it does something that I don't think a lot of articles talking about, like, specifically race in the theaters do. It puts at the forefront that the people in charge and who are seeing these things should be the ones to talk about why these things are all white. Mm -hmm. Like, because there are not many... There are not many institutions of color in this country, of like theater companies of color. Yes. Just because of like the way that wealth disparation, wealth works in this country. There are more um, people of color in property than there are white people. And there are more white people who have the opportunity to start theater companies. And the question is, like, and I like the question here, why is it that in areas where act where you have background racial backgrounds that are primarily black and Latino, something other than white, the only thing you see on stage is white? Why is that and how does it occur? Why are the only people getting put on these stages white? And why? And why is this not a conversation that's happened somewhere in back rooms where it's like, all right, listen, yes, our staff is all white. Yes, our creative staff is all white. Yes, our business staff is all white. Yes, our directors are all white. Yes, our casts are all white. Why? And this article, it relates to something that I read a few, like a month or two ago, writing a paper about how like the racial demographic of the of United States is going to change. Mm-hmm. Like how by 2044 it's going to be primarily Latino. Mm-hmm. And how there are no theater companies taking the necessary needs to like get ready for that change. Like how there there's a pro, there's like a projected thing I saw from an Asian theater company out in California that like by 2044, most of your at least half of your cast are going to be the racial demographic that will be the majority minority. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And so it's just like, what are you doing to prepare for this shift that is going to come and happen? Like, when things shift, what are you going to do? A lot of it comes out of complacency and the fact that this is safe, this is, this is what we know. And also the fact that theater is seen as more of a commodity than as something for people. Right. And I think that is a big issue. Is we're not taking the audience and who the audience is into account. So we're taking into account what do we want to see, what do the old people who are giving us money want to see, what is safe. And it's just, and the thing is like for me, when it comes down to things like this, where if you run a theater company and if you run a theater company in a place where the majority of people, particularly like in this situation are minorities, there should be a conversation being had about why doesn't anyone on our staff look like the people we're presenting this art to. Mm-hmm. What point did you guys not disagree with? Because I didn't actually read I think it was, the specific quote was something like, if you are a white character and you're being fitted for a turban, deny the role. And if, if, it's an all, if, you're, in an, if you're cast in an all-white cast, deny, deny the role. I think that is a little extreme. I think shows that can be cast differently should be, 
but shows that can't be and specifically call for an all-white cast, which exist and are done all the time. Yes. Um, I don't think you can say, like this person suggests in this article, oh, is, is the cast all-white? Yep. Well, I can't do it. I'm sorry. Yeah, I definitely, that's that's kind of uh, That's the only point I don't agree with. Uh, Bobby, what, what that is, you know? for, for me, it was actually the first point which ties into that. Um, literally, point number one is don't give time or money to organizations that rarely program or cast non-white theater makers. Like, yes, it is important to support uh, inclusiveness. However, if the work is good, I don't care. I'm going to pay to see the thing. Mm-hmm. I am actually on the opposite end of the fence. This is the reason I don't go see movies anymore. Mm. Like, I don't want to put my time... I mean, and it probably would be different. It's probably different for me with theater just because I... I can enjoy theater more than I can enjoy a movie. But the reason I stopped going to the movie so frequently is because I don't want to put my money into something that I can't see myself in. Mm. Like, it's a little bit different in theater just because oftentimes you don't know what you're getting until you go into it. Mm -hmm. But I understand the... I understand the concept of... And while I don't think that we should stop funding things like that, I understand where that point is coming from. Yeah, I I understand the base idea of it, but I feel like it was taken to the absolute extreme. Extreme, Yeah. Yeah. Which is the issue. I I find this entire article to be a little extreme. Uh, Looking at that same point Bobby was talking about, about don't give time or money to organizations that rarely program or cast non-white theater makers. He says, just don't go to play, don't go to plays that are presented by companies that do that. Including, this might require missing a play that excites you, a friend's first leading role, and traveling longer distances to see theater. I'm not going to miss a very close friend's big shot in a show because that friend is employed by a company that has an all-white ensemble. Mm-hmm. I'm just not. And that's... Uh, I So I may personally not agree with that company and their uh, build-up. But that's something down. to take up with the company. But not yes, to yes. Take it not, I'm not going to take that out on my friend and say, hey, I can't come to see your show. I'm against that company. You know what I mean? That's, that's work. To me, it's all work. Yeah. You just you have to support the artist, just not the company. No, one of one of the things I'm interesting about media and theater in particular is kind of not only is it a, a lack of diversity, but there are so few Asian actors in things. Oh, definitely, it's definitely. It's, it's insane. Um, like right and, now, I, I, the only the only like two genuine shows I can name right now that feature Asian actors are, are Fresh Off the Boat on mm-hmm. um, ABC, and then uh, Doctor Kim, and that's I think that's it. Yeah. And uh, kind of tying this to the point I was making about cultural appropriation, um, I've seen a lot of stuff that I found really, really offensive. Um, I guess I'm just a little overly sensitive to kind of the way Asian culture is used in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are, there are shows like um, like Rashomon, uh, which is based on, you know, like a 1940s Kurosawa film. Um, I can't count how many times it has been done with an entirely white cast. Um, also stuff like Miss Saigon, um, Wonderful, wonderful show, but the original production, instead of hiring, you know, an Asian actor to play one of the leading roles of the engineer, they cast Jonathan Price. Great actor. This character is Asian. They put an Englishman in yellow face. I don't understand if, you know, you're going to go through the time and the money to search the world to find, you know, Leia Salonga for this role. You can find one more Asian actor who is amazing because there are like 500 more of them somewhere to fill this part. Mm-hmm. That upsets me. I don't think it's something that's thought about. I, I mean, just being honest. Yeah. I don't think that like cultural appropriation as it exists and like how it harms people of color is like really considered or cared about much, even though theater is progressive. And I just think that is 
it's a shame. It's a damn shame. But it just theater is progressive, and there are some things that get left behind, and others that get promoted. All right, uh, changing gears here a little bit. Uh, there was an interesting article on backstage. Um, it applies primarily to film casting. I feel like it's worth talking about in a theatrical context as well. But there's an L.A.-based casting agent um, who's actually talking about and actually has been completely revamping his audition process. And uh, as we all know, auditions, whether you are behind the table or in front of the table, are mind-numbing. Yes. So the way, the way he's running his casting is... Um, so he'll look at everyone's reels, mm-hmm. and then based on the reels, instead of going immediately into cold reads, he will send the actor the material. They'll have time to read it and analyze it and how they connect to this character. And they'll come in and they'll sit down and they'll have a meeting, and they'll talk about it. He only interviews the people he is specifically interested in reading for X part or Y part. So that kind of weeds out, like, you know, the 10% of, oh, this is actually not a good fit. You don't connect or this doesn't work. So you're connecting with the actor on a personal level. You understand how they're connected to the character and what it will be like to work with them before sitting in a room for five hours listening to 20 people read the same monologue from a play. I think that this article was really interesting in the context of film. Yes. And even like more so just as someone who has sat behind the directors, like the other side of the table. And it's just like after a while, it's just auditions are like, all right, you're a number now. Exactly. All right. You're, all right. Okay, I get it. You okay? Oh, oh, mm, I want to go mm. because after after a certain point, unless they do something really amazing, they all just become blobby human shaped things. And I like, and it's a and it's a huge problem. And I like the con, like the ideas he he's putting forward here. And I think this is something that works in a setting of where you have a company. Mm. If we're talking like theater, I think this works better if you have a company. I agree. And you have a company of actors that are employed by your theater company you you have seen them work multiple times before and you have ideas going in of what you would like to look for i think that would work better than like just your standard cattle call auditions mm-hmm. i disagree per- personally i enjoy seeing everyone's audition i think and not so much enjoy as an oh i like watching you do a monologue i like seeing my mind change or something that if i have a particular image for a role and it's happened to me every show I've directed um, someone changing that and I think if I kind of did what this man is suggesting and kind of set them into one one character and didn't kind of explore my choices with that yeah, person yeah, through a series of cold reads kind of like what we were used to then I might miss out because my preliminary idea isn't always what ends up happening because someone changes something and my, my favorite thing in audition process is having something surprised me having a person read for a part that i wasn't really considering but i wanted to kind of i wasn't sure you know what i mean and then they just jumped to my first choice in a position that is the most i think rewarding thing for the production itself and i think for my education from that individual casting process does that make sense yeah um and i think another thing for the actors i think just getting sometimes i think just getting called back is experience as educational experience yeah because every callback is different I've been called back to a show where I started reading, got seven seconds in, and they had cut off. And that was educational. That's probably the most educational callbacks I've ever had. And will I get us in that show? Heck no. <laughs> but, I don't know, every time I've been called back to anything, whether I get cast or not, was beneficial to me. And I think, I think, make, yes, that process that this man mentions is more efficient for the director, but auditions aren't just about the director. Well, I don't think this is specifically just about the director. One of the points he makes, which is one of my issues with kind of the audition process in general, is the fact that 
it is a disservice to the actor that we are sitting behind the table and essentially becoming numb to the work that they are performing for us. Like, because it's not just taxing on us, it's taking away from them that we become so complacent and so zoned out and they do become a number. I and think, that's dehumanizing. Okay, but, but, that, but that isn't all directors. I don't become numb watching auditions. Mm-hmm. I every with every group that comes as long as it's not like everyone comes to the beginning of the day and I watch 300 people just get up from the same room I think the way auditions are structured can help that if the director has breaks if the director if actors come in maybe groups of 10 I think every group brings something new there's a new novelty out of there you know what I mean the environment changes with every new group that walks into a room to me from my experience and um, I don't get bored watching people and people don't blend it. I remember people that I have no idea what their name is, but I remember exactly what Monoway did for auditions. I remember a Shakespeare Monoway they did eight weeks ago. I don't know their name, but <laughs> I know exactly what they look like and what Monoway they did. Well, I think monologues are helpful, but I personally, as both an actor and a director, really dislike cold reads. Because I feel like that's when that's when the numbing starts. That's when you see the same thing over and over again. The people in the room see what other people are doing. And a lot of times they just imitate each other. And then as an actor, I just don't like that. Because I feel like that's not showing my true range. Whereas with monologues, that's you at your best. That is something that you are picking and saying, like, this is me doing this. What's up? I couldn't just cast a show. And I don't know many people who could off seeing a monologue audition and not seeing anyone read that part. The thing is, you can get two girls that look similar and seem like they have similar acting ability for a monologue, mm-hmm. but when you get them in a role, one of them just shines and takes off and the other just doesn't get it. Well, and I-, I think that this is important in, in understanding that this is film. And that this and that there is a difference in auditioning for film and yeah, auditioning for theater. I do not think this process would work for theater. See, here's the thing though. I don't think it would work for all theaters, but in the standing of having a company... And like you already having actors that are employed by your company and you already having actors that you are paying and knowing what they can do, I don't necessarily think that like auditions for every role are a necessity. I could agree to that. I could agree with the, it's the same group of people. Like for instance, if I have a company of 20 actors right. and I have the same 20 actors for every play and I've seen them do it. Right, and you, you have an idea already years. of like, okay, yeah, you can I go know. here, you can go here. Well, you can I, go could, here. I could look at two guys and say, you're right for this role. And call them in, and maybe a third guy who I don't think is necessarily perfect for a role, but I think has the acting ability and I to think do that, it. And I think that is more so, again, the difference between theater and film. I think that, like, in his, the way he is constructing it, is it sort of the idea of a company and you knowing people as opposed to, like, you having. 20, 20 to two, 200 to 2,000 randoms That's coming thing. in auditioning. I think right. if you're flying in blind, you can't meet 200 people. Right. And interview them for parts. That's a it's a much simpler. Because he has sixty ninety second monologue. Get what you can from that. You know from a monologue who you're going to call back most of the time, but not who you're going to cast. In my sense, and I think sometimes casting a show just based on monologues. I know that I've been in processes either ading, stage managing, or acting or uh, directing where someone that may have been first choice at mon- because of their monologue was dropped as soon as we got cold reads because you see an entirely different thing. Right. You see them in the character. That's. I actually wanted to jump into this this debate earlier about monologues and cold reads. I definitely understand where you're coming from, not mm-hmm. liking cold reads, both as an actor and a director. Mm-hmm. I have a different viewpoint, for one, just because I love cold reads. I've, I've actually gone to auditions where it's literally just coming in cold read, and mm-hmm. I love that. Um, but also, for me, as a director, 
a monologue, even though, yeah, that shows me what you do well, that only shows me you do this monologue well. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't show me, it doesn't, it doesn't really show me your range, it doesn't show me your ability. Um, it shows me that you've memorized this and you've worked on it, and this particular thing is good. Um, a cold read, even when they're not stellar, and a good many of them are not, you can watch the way someone analyzes on their feet and the way they're working and the way they interact with someone else. And I think that is just as important. And the as thing the is, monologue. you can give direction in the cold read. Exactly. You can't give someone direction over a monologue they practice and have this very certain way. The same way you can give them a scene they haven't, they have not performed. They may have read the strip, but they haven't performed yet. And then give them a direction on that scene. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I just personally feel that cold reads are very misleading. I have met actors who are amazing at cold reads, but once they actually get into the process, they're not that great. Yes. And then I've met really good actors who just aren't the best at reading on their feet. Um, I'm dyslexic, and I have a lot of trouble doing cold reads because I'm like, this is the first time I've read this. I Words are hard for me. I feel like you shouldn't focus so much on cold reads other than maybe for chemistry testing. I get that. I get like using cold reads to see, oh, this person works well with that person. But I wouldn't put so much weight on it in auditions. And I think that is something that is very important to understand that someone can be a great actor. They don't. They not are not necessarily the best reader. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like just because some people, we all read at different levels. That, I mean, that's why I'm a proprietor of both. Moving right along, the play we'll be discussing this week is Bad Jews by Joshua Harmon, picked by our wonderful Austin. It tells the. It tells the story of a young girl trying to rage against the machine. <laughs> if I can put it in the simplest terms. This uh this show really kinda <laughs> This show really kinda snuck up on me. Yeah. yeah. I'm one of those I'm one of those assholes who are like, if it's not weird and it doesn't grab me, I'm just no, not for me. Yeah. Um and it and it definitely has one of those one of those intros where it's like okay we got to sit through the first five minutes but mm-hmm. oh my god once yes. you get through those amazing. first five minutes it's it is just it, it changes your life yes um, and also these characters yes oh my god these characters so we um, the play revolves around four characters we have our lead Daphna mm-hmm. her younger cousin Jonah mm-hmm. her I don't want to say older cousin but Jonah's older brother he is, he is older yeah jo- okay her older cousin Liam. And Liam's girlfriend, Melody. Yes. Um, Jonah, Liam, <laughs> and Daphna are all Jewish. Daphna, incredibly <clears throat> so. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's one way to put it. Um, and it just... It's like a nice little family reunion that <laughs> no one really thought was necessary. It's not nice at all. Not nice um, at all. This play is... If you want a play with lengthy monologues and some of the best comedic writing... Bad Jews is for you. There is no this play is this play has monologues that are like a page, two pages long that are like all one sentence. Yes, and I mean it's not monologues like there's two pages of someone speaking out like to the audience, right? Uh, separate from the scene, as monologues like two of the other characters. Yeah, they're, they're, like a they're just like screaming yeah. at each other. They're monologues the way that like we as people talk when we do monologues, yeah. even if we don't sometimes mean it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What uh what I find really interesting is the way that um. So Daphne's Daphne's story is they're they're in this this small apartment, a very very expensive apartment. Very 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 expensive um, apartment in uh, in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and uh, the grandfather just died, and they're waiting on their older brother to come back to town, and Daphne is just obsessed with getting um, her grandfather's necklace, which is the Jewish symbol for the letter Chai, 
and so it more or less revolves around that. What's, what's interesting about Daphna is the fact that for some reason she is both likable and I also just hate this bitch with an undying passion. See, I, I absolutely disagree. I think she is one of the most unlikable characters I've ever read in my entire life because she is, while she, and I have a way to correct that I think casting-wise, but I think on paper, reading some of the things she says and she her big thing is having her her and the heritage she respects so much respected, but she is not respectful of anyone else in the play. So I think it is very, and you can argue with me if you want, I don't care. But uh, she comes off as very rude a lot of the time, and I think a lot of her lines, if you don't, I think you have to cast an actress that's somewhat inherently likable, and if you don't, then... The thing about this play for me that interests me, and I'm not disagreeing with you about her being likable, mm -hmm. I don't think anyone except like Jonah and sometimes Melody are particularly likable. I mean, I agree. I agree. I don't, I don't <laughs> I think... I think definitely the two main characters Daphne is not likable, and Liam least. is just, like... Oh. Daphne is one kind of unlikable, but Liam is, like, a different kind for me that just... I don't like both of them, but I don't like Liam a little bit more than I don't like Daphne. Really? There's just... There's, just for me personally, there's something about him that bugs me. Again, I don't like them in the same ways, but I don't like one of them because you are unnecessarily rude. I don't like the other one because you know she's unnecessarily rude, and the reactions you sometimes give like are provoking. And just off the jump, I feel like you're a So jerk. you don't like him more because he provokes the rudeness from a rude person. But it's not it's his attitude is it's this really I am rich. I just got back from Aspen. I flew in late to my grand I was I missed my grandfather's funeral because of my cell phone was missing. <laughs> there are just I just I just, I don't get him as a person that I don't really like him. Yeah. I like Daphne because even though she was really rude, she was honest. Like she's a really genuine person, even though everything she said was like awful. But it's like her actual feelings on things. Whereas I feel like her cousin Liam, he's he just seems really fake. I don't think fake is the right word. Um, Insincere. Do you have things to? Yeah, I was, I was gonna say that while I don't find Daphne to be likable. And, and the way that we think of it is, oh, I like this person. Because, I mean, yeah, she's a terrible person. They both are. Um, but I understand I understand what Daphne is doing. Um, Daphne, Daphne felt very close to her grandfather. She feels a little entitled. And, um, and she's that's very, the interesting thing. Like, she felt that she was the closest to her grandfather. Even and though really, had, she was not. There were two other kids. Neither of them were. I felt like the most, the, the quietest one was the closest. Well, really the thing was. is, I don't know if he was necessarily the closest. He's just the one that took. He took it the hardest. He took, yeah. Well, no, not the hardest. I think he took, he's the one that took his relationship with his grandfather the most to heart. Yeah. And is the only one that's really honoring him. Well, in yeah. That sense. Um, I think. I don't know. I, I feel like getting your grandfather's Holocaust number tattooed on your arm qualifies as taking his death the hardest. I. Don't I don't think hard is the right I mean, way. I think they all I think they took all take it hard in hard. different ways. I think I understand Liam's motivation for being an asshole in the sense that a lot of his motivation is that Daphne is acting like she was like hands down the closest. And he even makes a comment about why he is acting the way he is, is because she is kind of disregarding the yeah, 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 yeah. experience. And he and there's a part where he is this two page monologue where he's going off about her. Saying, <laughs> saying very awful things about her, but he stops for a second, and the stage directions even indicate that he's like, "There's a motion of like an honest moment where right. he says, I mean, it's not like I didn't have moments with him too.' 
And that is a moment of honesty you see with him that kind of uh, displays why he is frustrated. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that's why I think I understand because she does. She never. The only thing a lot of one of the reasons I don't like her as a character very much is that um, she she doesn't ever acknowledge that the others are going through the same thing she is. Like they are all experiencing hardship. I mean, and I think Liam is guilty kind of of the same thing, yeah. but he's also coming from a place of he's not thinking about anyone else because he is so caught up in the fact that no one is thinking about him. Does that make sense? And she's just not thinking about anyone else. See, and here's my thing about that is like in a normal family, and I'm not I I I as an only child, I don't have well, I have an older sister, but my older sister and I don't know each other. Um, you would think that like the two oldest would care about the youngest. But it seems like Liam, not Liam, but Jonah really gets left out in the cold a lot of times in these things. Mm-hmm. It's like, Jonah, agree with me. Jonah, agree with me. Jonah, agree with me. Jonah, agree with me. You're going to take my side, right? You're going to take my side, right? And it's like, we. one of my problems with the play is we never get to hear Jonah, like, really speak up for himself. I mean, there are moments. Yes. But there aren't. I don't think that's my, I don't think that's a problem. I don't have a problem with that being a thing in the play. I think it is very intentional that he never speaks up for himself. Yeah, because that's the that final moment. Play when he does reveal that he has uh, gotten a tattoo of his grandmother in the Holocaust. And I think it is way more impactful and, and effective if he's been a quiet one. He hasn't been screaming his head off. He hasn't made Dongi's opinion out when no one asks for it. You know what I mean? Throughout the entire play. But I mean, I feel like his opinion was very much needed throughout this entire play. I think it was important, but I think that... And, like, then you have Melody, who, God bless her, but... <laughs> My, you just there is a point where you have to stop being nice. Yes. Don't let her talk anymore, please. Please don't let her talk anymore. God. I just, I'm. It's again, it's a really good plan. I would love if ever I had the chance to direct it. And I think I agree with Austin 100. percent You have to cast someone who is innately likable as um, Daphne. Daphne. I think I going back to that. I think you have to cast someone innately likable as both of those characters. Uh, because those characters, I think, are the hardest to agree with. It's just it's interesting to me, like with particularly with Liam, like and I and maybe the reason I don't necessarily I, I'm so conflicted with Liam because I get what you're saying, but there is still just something about him that is like really off-putting to me. And maybe again, it's him coming in with this expensive skateboard. And just I, just, I don't, I'm a snowboard. I just, I don't know what it is about Liam, but there was something really off-putting I started me. to really dislike Liam during Daphne's monologue where she talked about how Liam's all, if you asked him about his religion, he'd be like, oh, I'm atheist. But then in other situations, he's like, well, I'm Jewish, but da 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 Whereas Daphne's Jewish all the time. I mean, but Daphne makes him a fake history for herself. Like, Wait, can I? I mean, they're all, no, they're all, uh, they're all bad um, in different ways. I actually find Liam to be obscenely likable. Um, also, because uh, apart from apart from the there is a there was a small amount of oh yes I was an Aspen and oh it's not my fault because my phone was destroyed bullshit kind of you know like a uh, little Charles in August Osage County kind of thing going on. It's different thing, but it's the same idea of it's oh it's not my fault. I disagree with you, but that's not what this is about. Yeah, we, we can talk about August Osage County on down the line, and we're going to remember this one. I need. But I Go mean, ahead. Daphna mentions like, oh, your girlfriend had a cell phone. Why couldn't you like call in or something? Yes, but that's not the reason that I like Liam. The reason I like Liam is, A, I kind of understand his relationship with Daphna. And, and also the way he feels about Melody. Um, it's so damn sweet. It is obscenely sweet. And 
Agreed. I was disgusted. Sorry. But also, like, I, I have I have a similar relationship with, with someone in my family that's very Liam and Daphna. Yeah. So I understand Liam, absolutely. Because that is something I have grown up around. I have a similar relationship with a lot of people in my family like that. Um, I think, and I don't know if this is, I don't know uh, enough about your background so like that to make an assumption about you, mm-hmm. but as far as me personally connecting with him more, uh, I think the reason, not so much, I don't really disagree with her choices or her motives in the play, but I think a reason I don't connect with her as easily as I do the other is because she her prime motivations are honoring her family, mm. honoring her background and stuff like that, you know what I mean? And Liam, I feel like, gets a lot of hate in this play for kind of... Disowning that. Disowning that. Turning, kind of turning his back on his family and being someone that has gone through situations like that, not as obviously extreme or dramatized as it is in this play, I understand why he would do... Like, that there are, mo- there are circumstances that could cause him to do that. Does that make sense? It just feels kind of hypocritical when he's the kind of person who studies cultures and appreciates all these other cultures so much, but when it comes to his own, he blows it off. And, like, he makes faces during, like, certain rituals and I celebrations. Mean, I mean, but I think that's all intended, it. like, irony by the playwright. I don't think that's, like... Oh, and it was great irony, and okay, I love the okay. show. It's just, it's, it made me not like Liam even more. Which I assumed I, don't, I was but supposed to. I don't know, though. I kind of took that as he studied all these cultures, and he... I kind of take that as he's open-minded about other things. And I think... And you can disagree with me if you want, which I'm sure you will. But um, he's learned about all these things. And for me, I... A lot of my family is predominantly like, extremely religious. I have never been. And a lot of that is because I know about a lot of things, and I kind of want to make my own opinion about things, no matter if that aligns with them or not and that causes a lot of conflict with me and them and uh it's my problem isn't just the religiousness it's the jewishness he's not just turning his back on judaism i feel like he's turning his back on being jewish ethnically and my problem arises when it comes to like when they were talking about like the israeli like jewish conflict where it's like i'm not jewish but as a jewish person my opinion on this is going to weigh a little more than yours I don't see a point in you distancing yourself from your ethnicity and then at the same token using it like later in conversation using it as a means to diminish something mm-hmm. like about your ethnicity doesn't I don't, I don't see the point in that like I just, I just that doesn't that doesn't register to me as a person mm-hmm. oh, I get a sense that it actually matters to him to a certain degree although he's not he is not as in he's your not, face Jewish he's as not Daphne as is Jewish but I mean, the fact that is, not, not, not is Jewish but he's not like Daphne anyway. yes but uh, what I find interesting is he's the type of person who easily could have afforded to buy Melody an engagement ring, but he didn't want to give her that. It was, this is a token for my family. It's very important to me. Continuing tradition. It is an inherently Jewish symbol. And and, 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 and that's what's interesting about yes, it. Yes, I don't, I don't think he, his motivations for giving that to her were to keep it from Daphna. I think it were, was to, like, to carry the tradition on that his grandfather did. I mean, because yes. he... He had this whole plan, that, like this whole story that his grandfather gave his grandmother when she proposed the same way that he intended to do with this girlfriend. And um, but then there's the question, like, did his grandfather give him the yeah that whole thing seemed really necklace? sketchy, mm-hmm. or was like was it he telling his mom and his mom taking it? Well, I I honestly I think that uh, stuff like this is one of the is one of the reasons the play. Um, is so damn good mm-hmm. because it's ambiguous and we're left to our own devices to figure this out. And, and I feel like that's what a good show And also does. just like the moment in the play of like 
Because <laughs> there's a point where Daphna attacks Melody and Melody's injured and she's like, this was in someone's mouth for two weeks. Yes. It's already infected. It just, it means nothing at the end to anybody. And it's just, and then you have that like, that somber moment, everyone leaves and then there's just Jonah and he just unravels and it's his grandfather's number on his arm. And it's mm-hmm. just, this is, a, this is a brilliant play. God, Thank you, Austin, Jonah. for recommending it. Yes. Like, this is a brilliant yeah. play. And I think that the fact that we all have such differing opinions on it proves that it's a brilliant play. Yeah. Because there's so many there's so many things being brought to the conversation about the play. Mm-hmm. So connecting this to that early article uh, where no one does things that or likes doing things that challenge them or whatever the hell it said. Um, Here we are. This is something that challenged all of us in different ways. Yeah. And I know the end of that article. <laughs> you just okay. Never mind. You got an argument over it. That's challenging in a way. Um, I know in that article, at the end it says, um, a que- I, I ask a question to all the readers here, I wasn't the last time you read a play or saw a play that challenged you. And I think this challenges you because in a way it makes you empathize with, empathize with some of these characters, even if, like, you two obviously don't agree with one of them at all. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't mean, I agree with anybody, just, and I think that's the thing for but me. But you agree with one before the other. Jonah, yeah. One of the two that we were talking about arguing before the other is what you said earlier. Mm, all right. Okay. Um, so I think that it's polarizing in a sense. It's what? It can, be, it can be potentially polarizing in a sense. Okay. I feel like this is the wrong definition of challenging, honestly. Um, like, like, yes, like it spurred a lot of great debate over characterization and meaning and relationships. But for me, what makes a play challenging is not, oh, do we disagree about these characters? It's about the subject matter. Is the subject matter challenging me to think about something in a new and different way that I never would have done before? Yes, I mean, I and, when, when I, I, and what is the subject matter? The subject matter is the I think is the importance of heritage, the importance of there because there are two even today. There's problems with all kinds of heritage in different groups that aren't just Judaism. Yeah, there are. I think every major culture has dissenters, if you will, as far as people who. Uh, kind of don't want anything to do with that but they have that doesn't make them wrong and there are people that still want to honor those traditions as hardcore as Daphne does and there are people that don't want it like Liam and yes you guys brought up the point that he will use it in advantageous situations Mm -hmm. but I think a lot of what this play is about as far as subject matter and theme of the play and things like that is just that carrying over of heritage yeah uh, and I think that is the challenging part. I didn't mean, like, the character analysis of the play was challenging for us. I meant that there are things that... There are ve- two very different sides that I think are represented almost equally in importance. Because the char- because it turns out that the character that is... In the middle. Right, is, is, is in the middle is the one that is honestly the only good person in this play. Is the one that is directly in the middle of both those things. And that he wants to move on with his life and things like that. And not necessarily honor... And worship as hardcore as Daphne does, but he also doesn't want to entirely turn his back on like Liam did. And I mean, even he wants to be in the middle. even like the name of to, for like for to me the name of like Jonah is it's not it's it's Jonah is a really interesting name to me because of like the biblical allegorations of uh, Jonah and the well. Jonah and the well. Jonah and the well. Right. It's one of those names that like has a very distinct Hebrew origin, but it's not Daphne, and it's not as um, what I don't remember the English. Uh-huh. Oh. It's yeah, not, Liam is it's not white. English as Liam. It has it's like it finds place right in the middle while still maintaining like both a sense of today and then. Mm-hmm. You I know agree. what I mean? I agree. 
which Daphne is like I feel the 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 that and then Liam is there. Yeah. Like they are on two polar opposites and Jonah like you said is the middle where we find ourselves like I didn't expect this from you. So would you say this play is challenging in some way? Yeah, I mean cuz personally for me it made me think about my blackness. And like I find myself in a similar situation like this with someone else who like me is an African American but doesn't want to be associated with African American. Even though you can't change your skin color. I don't I can understand how Bad Shoes can be a challenging play. I feel like it yeah, it says a lot of profound things and it has made me think about things. However, I am not personally challenged by it. I understand what it's doing, what it's saying, and it's a lot of good stuff to think about. I don't find it challenging. I understand that, but um, I don't think anything is challenging for everyone that watches it. I can agree with that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because I think, I'm sure there are things that you would think were challenging, but I think you and Sarah would think were challenging, but Jamal and I wouldn't. Or any combination of us being split, <laughs> or one of us thinking something is challenging, the rest not, or anything like that. Does that make sense? Because we're all different people. Yeah, we're yeah. all different, and we all find different. Vaguely different backgrounds. Yes. Vaguely, very different backgrounds. Yeah. One of us wears glasses. <laughs> 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 Moving right along, um, over the last weekend, Bobby Austin and myself had the chance to see a wonderful production of American Idiot over at uh, the Obsidian Theater in Houston, and I I have never I had never been um, exposed to anything about American Idiot. I just knew that it was a musical about Green Day, which going in was kind of like eh, we're making musicals about Green Day. Um, Austin and Bobby had some prior exposure from I think the the, the uh, Broadway recording. Uh, the uh, there's a documentary. Oh, sorry. I misunderstood the question. You and you're I, correct. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, I, I know you and because like you guys have told me about some of the music. I know. Yeah, like, the you guys uh, the soundtrack. Yeah, talking about some of the music, and I just I think it's important that we, you know, talk about things that we have seen, and just a sense of like supporting the village that we, you know, this is where we are, the things we see, and I just, what did you guys think of American Idiot? I made noise. I'm sorry. Speaking of an I'm American gonna, idiot, I'm gonna put these down. Pick up. I personally love it. Um, I think that the three Moe's were great, all three of them. Uh, I particularly liked their lead lead. John is his name, right? Character name? Yeah. Um, I love that guy. Uh, <laughs> and I, I think I was kind of amazed because all the footage and things I've seen of that show requires some ridiculous effects, and the space is microscopic, and I knew the space was tiny because uh, Bobby has had experience with the space being a production there. And... So I was just interested, but I think they handled it wonderfully. Every aspect yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was uh, going going in. I I expected the show to sound great. I remember um, over the summer I was in a production of Assassins. I remember in the middle of the run they were auditioning and casting American Idiot, and I looked at the people they had, and I I was familiar with some of them. I was like, God, this is gonna sound wonderful. How is this show going to work when it's not you know like a six million dollar budget and like a gigantic space? And damn, does it work. Mm. And it works in a very different way, which I find really interesting. Yeah. Um, because, you know, the original production is, you know, oh, we're in a sing holiday and he's moving to a town. Let's flip this gigantic thing over and out to bus and run it around the stage. You don't need that. And it's beautiful because um, while it is not minimalist by any means, um, it cuts it down to bare essentials. And yes. I think it really, it actually makes the story more impactful. Agreed. Um, agreed. That's it. Uh, yeah. And I think this leads this can lead into the discussion of the story itself and how effective it is for certain people because I know that 
Bobby and I were were impacted by it and were personally moved by it in some way, but Jamal was not. And Jamal, do you want to explain that to us? Um, sure, I guess, since I'm on the spot like that. Oh, um, I guess I just didn't... I am not moved by a lot of things. Everyone here knows that I am a crier. I cry ridiculously easily. If you show me something about a family, I'm out. I, ten minutes in, I'm out. And I just, there was nothing about American Idiot for me, as as far as the play goes, not the production, because the production was gorgeous, that just really spoke to me or touched me. And it's not like a sense of, there's nothing here I can relate to. It just wasn't something that moved me. It felt like a story I had seen a lot before, and it just, it was kind of played out to me. Looking at it, I can understand why this story would appeal to some people. Mm -hmm. I'm just not one of the people it appealed to. I thought it was great. <laughs> I thought it was moving. Speaking of the structure of the play itself, um, I can understand why people would not like it, in the sense that I can see the flaws in a play that is mostly music and then monologues in between some of the songs. But I enjoyed it. I enjoyed, and I, I agree with what Bobby said earlier. I really strongly agree with the fact that it was in a smaller space. It really helped you focus on the character and care about the characters and their journey more. I think. Um, I haven't seen the um, the uh, documentary on is it it's Netflix yeah yeah I haven't seen the documentary on Netflix but I'm guessing that the Broadway has a lot of spectacle oh my god yeah because yes. I saw a color I saw a production of the color purple um, over the summer for the first time in like a space that was similar to the one that we saw and it it took every it took every spectacle out mm -hmm. and it's just like I think it's interesting moving big musicals into smaller spaces because the spectacle you can't do nearly as much spectacle mm -hmm. and you're just kind of left with like the bare bone of what the musical is mm -hmm. and I think that's really and I, again I commend everyone on that team for that show because mm -hmm. that was a beautiful production yeah, also there were a lot of really really cool overly theatrical moments um, something I really dig is just kind of obscenely theatery stuff so stuff like stuff like crates and stuff like convention and there are no puppets, but oh my god, puppets are a thing. Um, but the uh, there's a moment in the show, spoilers, St. Jimmy, uh, quote-unquote, shoots himself in the head. Um, I know, Sarah looks so upset, St. Jimmy isn't real. It's not a big deal. But, um, not that rhyme, not that rhyme couplet. <laughs> <laughs> the scene is over, I proclaimed it so. But no, um, so so the moment where uh, where St. Jimmy just stops existing... He, uh, he pops a gun up to his head. And, you know, kind of the way we're used to seeing gunshots on stage is, like, blackout sound cue, blah, 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 blah. Oh. Um, it's loaded with red confetti, so it's this kind of theatrical way of saying he just blew his fucking brains out all over the place. And I am all about that. It was beautiful. There were some really cool images. Um, I'm happy. The confetti just hit him in the face? No, it's, it's aim he aims it slightly out, so it's just like, pow! Oh. And it just like flies in front of his face and out. So that's just unrealistic. <laughs> <laughs> the manifestation of addiction is unrealistic. <laughs> I, uh, also this weekend, I wound up seeing both uh, the national tour of Matilda and the regional premiere of Bonnie and Clyde. And well, those were amazing. Um, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Nobody else was no, there. No, no, please keep talking about it. Let them know how it feels. I've... <laughs> The thing is, I've already I've already gone on and on about how amazing Matilda is and how they don't even understand, so they're sick of it by now. I'm not sick of it. I wouldn't say that. I, I, I know he is. I am feeling under the weather. And our last segment for the day is our very own Bobby's Angry Inch, 
where Bobby is going to rant to you for a minute about something he cannot stand. So, Bobby, what are you running about this right. week? So, this week I'm going to talk about the fact that Gentleman's Guide is closing and Kinky Boots is still allowed to exist. <laughs> All right. Ready? Okay. Go. All right, first off, in order to get to the whole Kinky Boots thing, I'm still super pissed off that Kinky Boots stole all of the, the awards Matilda actually deserved at the Tony Awards three years ago. I already thought this before seeing Matilda. I saw it last weekend. I actually hate Kinky Boots even more because Matilda is perfect and is beautiful. You do not understand until you have seen it. Anyway, Gentleman's Guide. Wonderful show, kind of Sondheim-y, kind of old school, but it's fun. Closing in, like, January. Lots of reasons. Whatever. I don't know. Probably some bad producing choices. But how the hell is Kinky Boots still allowed to exist on God's green earth? I mean, it's such a gigantic, colossal piece of shit. I mean, yeah, oh, oh, hun, Cindy Lauper wrote a musical. Let's go see it, because we're 50 and white. We don't know what good stuff is. We rely on posters. No. Go see a good show. Go see a good show. Please, God, stop this madness. And you know what? Wayne Brady's in it now. Oh, gee, let's go see Wayne Brady. That'll be a great time. Okay. Thank you, buddy. Oh. I would like to, as always, thank our wonderful panel, Bobby, Yo. Sarah, <laughs> and Austin. Uh, and I'd also like to thank you guys out there that are listening. We got a really sort of positive response from some of our colleagues and friends, and that was really kind of cool. And so if you guys want to join in on the conversation or even have some questions asked about things we talk about on air, send them to outdampodcast at gmail.com, and we'll talk about some of the things on air. And you might even get an email back. You never know. So, as always, this is Jamal signing out.